looking at verses 17 through 26. So we're going to be finishing up our, uh, our time in this chapter. Well, looks can be deceiving. Uh, when you look up at the sky, it's pretty hard to comprehend just how big and how fast that 747 cruising at 33,000 feet is moving. It looks so slow and peaceful, but it is really booking it. If you've ever driven out west, then you know how you can, as you're going down the highway, you can see these mountains rising up in front of you on the horizon. They look like they're right there, but then it takes hours to actually get there. Living in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, I remember taking a couple hiking trips with friends out on the Appalachian Trail, uh, and how as we were driving up to the trailhead, and we were looking up at the mountains we were about to be hiking and thinking, oh yeah, I mean, you can see the leaves on the trees up there. It's not, it's not that far. We can, I bet I could run up there in less than an hour. Well, only, uh, only to realize uh, the slopes are a whole lot steeper than you think. Um, the trail is a lot longer than what you can actually see from the trailhead. And uh, hiking a mile on, on a rocky trail is a whole different thing from walking one around the track at school. Now, there were plenty of points on those hikes where I thought to myself, why am I doing this? I mean, how is this fun? But there are other times, like when we actually got to the place we were trying to get to, looking back on the path where the path had taken us, where I also thought, you know, I wouldn't have had it any other way. And the path didn't always take me the direction that I thought it would go. Sometimes it would make you question if all the effort you were putting into this was worth it. But every time I came away thankful for the experience, awed by the amazing wonders that I got to see and interact with, thankful for the way that I'd grown through the challenges, and really grateful for the promise of a warm cup of coffee at the end. Well, the path of discipleship, the path that Jesus calls his people to, is a path that is not easy. In fact, it's a path that is hard. It takes us places that we would not want to go, places that challenge us, stretch us, places that are painful. After all, Jesus says that any, if any man or woman would be his disciple, they must take up a cross and follow him. In the first chapter of the book of James, verse 2, he instructs us, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So Jesus does not call us to the path of the, car, the cross arbitrarily or because he wants us to suffer. He calls us there because that is the path that he himself walked. The cross is the place where the righteousness of God was upheld, where the kingdom of Satan was dealt its mortal wound, where the precious blood that atoned for our sins was shed, where the justice of holy God was satisfied, and where the love and obedience of the Son was proved. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And the reason James tells us to count, our, count it our joy as well when the trail gets tough, when we're stretched and molded, where the testing of our faith produces steadfastness and where God perfects and completes us so that we enter his glory lacking nothing, is because we have received everything in Christ who overcame for us. The blessings of God's grace and his love were secured for us through the cross of Christ. 
Well, this morning we're looking at the second part of Peter's sermon, which he preached in the temple after he healed this lame man who used to lay at the temple gate. Last week, uh, we saw uh, in in the first part of Peter's sermon how he credited this mighty act of God's power to Jesus. Peter wanted the crowd that gathered around them to know that this great act, which so amazed them, had been done for a purpose, to show them that Jesus of Nazareth truly was the Christ, the Messiah they had longed for, that he had conquered sin and its power through his own death, and that he rules and reigns now as the resurrected king. Now, Jesus wasn't the Messiah that people were necessarily expecting. Though he was attested to the people by God, that he was attested by the works of his power and the words that he spoke, they rejected him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. They instead handed the hope of their fathers over to the Gentiles. They traded God's holy righteous one for a murderer. They killed the author of life, mocking him even while he interceded for them before the Father. The path of God's salvation plan went a direction that they hadn't anticipated. It was bigger and deeper and more glorious than what they had ever imagined it would be. So amazing, in fact, that the, that, um, that the door of salvation was still open to them because the blood which Jesus shed for them was enough. And that really is the heart of what we're going to be looking at today as we read the rest of what Peter had to say to this crowd. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Once again, we're in Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 17 and reading through the end of the chapter. Peter says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until a time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul that does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, you might expect, after laying the blame for the crucifixion of God's anointed king, squarely at the feet of this crowd in the temple, that there would be no hope for any of them. That there would be nothing for these people except to resign themselves to the fact that they had murdered God's own son and that there was no hope for them. But Peter had opened his mouth 
not just to bring them a message that confronted them about their sin, but to bring them a message of hope. A message which showed them the true measure of the atoning power of the blood of Christ and the dawning of a new age in the glory of his victory. The main idea of Peter's sermon here, and therefore the main idea of this sermon now, is this. Christ is the source of heaven's blessing. Christ is the source of heaven's blessing. So come and receive those blessings by coming to him. Well, in our time together in this morning, what I want to do is I want to bring to your attention three heavenly blessings which God has given us through Christ. And that what we'll be looking at is this. That Jesus brings us open eyes. He brings us open eyes. Second, we'll see how Jesus brings us restoration. He brings us restoration and renewal. And third, we see that Jesus brings us the blessing of a new covenant. He brings us the blessing of a new covenant. Well, first we want to see how Jesus opens our eyes. Now, it's hard for me to think of a sermon that really accounts for the sinister, grotesque thing that sin really is and what it does than Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, my first experience with that sermon, and really with Jonathan Edwards, uh, was in one of my high school lit classes where we read a small part of that sermon in which Edwards is describing how God sees our sin and how he sees us in that sin. And I remember, because we read such a short segment of it, coming away thinking to myself, man, this guy knows absolutely nothing about God's grace or mercy. I mean, what's going on here? I know I've heard of Jonathan Edwards. My dad had like volumes of Jonathan Edwards on his shelf. So I always had some pretty high hopes. And I'm reading, I'm reading this and I'm going, what, what is this? This isn't the gospel. It wasn't until years later when I actually read the whole sermon that I realized how much our lit book had left out and how wrong my first impression of Edwards had been because the whole point of the sermon wasn't to make much of hell or to make much of sin but rather to open people's eyes to see how lethal sin really is, how right God is to judge it, and therefore how amazing God's mercy is that he would save any of us. Well, if you were reading Peter's sermon for the first time, you might think, now you might come to the same idea of him, of what I, my first impression of him in his sermon that I came with Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Peter stands here with this crowd and just slams them with this heavy reality of what they had done to Jesus. They really are the full embodiment of those wicked tenants that Jesus talks about in his parable in Matthew 21, verse 41, who killed the master's son thinking that they could therefore get the field for them all, their own selves. Now, Peter speaks to them as he does, unearthing what they had done in all of its ugliness, so that they would see that they were, in fact, in the crosshairs of God's just wrath. This harsh language was necessary because without it, the crowd would never have really connected the significance of what Jesus' death had accomplished for them, how it had secured forgiveness and restoration for them, even though they had acted so wickedly. So when we come to verse 17, we're really coming to the turning point of Peter's sermon. Uh, to this point, it's all been about the power of God and the glory of Jesus and convicting these people of what they had done, how they had acted wickedly towards God. But it's in verse 17 
that Peter sort of switches gears to show the crowd what Jesus' death and resurrection meant for them, how it was actually good news. This is where he calls them to repent and to come to Christ, to experience not wrath, but to experience healing for their own souls, even as this man, who, who was lame, had experienced healing in his legs, how he had been made complete and perfect health. Now as we read verse 17, I think you can pick up on how Peter's voice changes, how it really, it really takes on a, a real sense of tenderness here as he looks out on this crowd and calls them brothers. Now this is, this is Peter. This is Peter who is rash and impulsive, who grabs swords and starts swinging them, okay? And he's looking at this crowd who put his Lord to death. And he looks them in the eye and says, Brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. What a thing to say. Now, Peter's not thundering at people, trying to avenge them uh, for what they did to Jesus with his own words. That's probably something that the old Peter would have done, but not here. And I think that's probably because Peter himself knew that he shared as much guilt with them for, for what happened to Jesus as these crowds who had called for his death. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, John tells us how he got up from the table how he wrapped a towel around his waist, and how he went from disciple to disciple, washing their feet. When Jesus came to Peter, Peter wouldn't have it. He knew his place. He knew his Lord was greater than him. And so he said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing to you, you do not understand. But afterward, you will understand. And after Jesus had finished he asked the disciples if they understood what he had just done for them. He told them that in the same way that he, their master, had humbled himself to serve them, so they also ought to love and serve one another. He had cleaned their feet as a picture of what he was about to do on the cross. He had shown them the measure of his humility, and he showed them that still further in how he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross, dying to cleanse them from their sins. As Peter addresses the crowd here with tenderness in a way that unified them with himself, he did so because he saw that Jesus came to make them clean even as he had come to make Peter clean. His eyes had been opened to his own need for a Savior. And just as Jesus was not ashamed to make sinners like us his brothers, so Peter was not ashamed to call these people the same. They each shared the same need, and they had inherited the same hope. Now Peter says something to the crowd here, which I think is very important for us. He says that he knew that they acted the way that they did, crucifying Jesus in ignorance, and even says the same thing of their rulers. But clearly, their ignorance of the gravity of what they had done did not in any way remove their guilt. And that's an important feature, an important point for us to catch. In the law of Moses, God clearly distinguishes between sins that are done in ignorance and sins which are carried out willfully. But that distinction never changes the fact that all sin, all sin must be answered for. 
And we saw this very clearly when we were back in the book of Joshua, when we were looking at the cities of refuge that God had appointed uh, to be a place of safety for the person who had unwillingly or accidentally killed their neighbor. A person who had unintentionally killed someone else could flee to one of these cities and find refuge, find protection from the avenger of blood. Someone who was related to the person they had killed who was out to avenge that blood. But even as God provided these cities of refuge, that did not change the fact that willfully or not, blood had been shed, that it had to be answered for. Even when a person went to trial and it was shown that they had not killed this other person maliciously, we, know, we saw that how they still had to remain in that city of refuge until the death of the high priest. If they left, their blood was on their own heads. And that is because sin is sin. Whether we are willful or ignorant about it, sin is sin. It must be answered for. Atonement has to be made. So by telling the crowd that he knew they had acted ignorantly, we shouldn't think in any way that Peter was trying to excuse what they had done. He's already shown them the gravity of what they did when they rejected God's chosen one and put to death the author of life. There is blood on their hands. But God had also provided them with a refuge, with a savior. And that's what Peter is trying to bring to their attention. Peter is appealing to them to flee the coming vengeance, to run to the city of God, to stand before the risen Lord, King Jesus, and to find refuge in Him. He's trying to raise their eyes to see the profound mystery of the way that God had worked in spite of their sin. Just as when Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery, so what they had done, they had done and meant for evil, but God had meant it for good. Peter's focus in all of this is not in any way to let these people off the hook for what they've done, but rather it was the point is to raise their gaze from their condition, their desperate condition, to see the glory of the God who had sent his own son to deliver them. Listen to what he says here in verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled. In other words, when you killed the author of life, brothers, you had no idea that all of this was happening exactly as God had decreed in his word to save the world through the suffering of his chosen servant, Jesus Christ, whom he has now exalted as Lord and King over all. And when we look at the cross from a human perspective, the cross of Jesus is the greatest miscarriage of justice that the world has ever seen. Jesus truly was innocent in the full meaning of the word. He is righteous. He is holy. He is God, the maker of all things. He kept the law perfectly. He is the new and better Adam, the impeccable high priest, the anointed king, the very word of God. He didn't deserve to die for sin because there was no sin to be found in him. He was delivered over to be crucified by the Jews because, he said these, because the things that he said about himself could only be said of God and the Christ. He died as he did because he spoke truthfully. And God, Peter says, appointed him to die according to his great love so that through his death the wicked might be made righteous, 
death might be broken, and the glory of the Chosen One might shine on us, bringing light and life to all who believe. From God's perspective, the cross of Jesus actually upheld His righteousness. Since when Jesus went to it, He shouldered the sin of His people on Himself. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul writes, For our sake, He, that is God made him, that is Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It was through the cross that God exalted Jesus as Lord and Christ. All the sins that God had passed over in his divine forbearance, Christ paid for on the tree, bearing the shame and the agony of perfect divine justice for us. In Romans 3, as Romans 3 explains, that all have sinned without distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an atoning payment by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus gives us eyes to see our sin for what it really is. He shows us that whether we sin ignorantly or willfully, we are still guilty. Because like an arrow shot at the moon, so we have fallen short of that goal of perfection. He shows us the gravity of our sin, how truly awful sin is. When we see Christ on his cross with his pierced hands and his stricken side, with his crushed soul, we see what it costs. We see what sin costs. And we also see that that is what he freely gave because he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the victorious redeemer whose priceless blood has set us free. In his death, we have redemption. And in his life, we have life with him forever. And this is only the first of the benefits of God's matchless grace, which he has given to us through Jesus. And that brings us to our second point this morning. Now, Jesus brings us restoration. Now, I've said before that while the gospel is the message of what God has done for us, it's also a message that demands a response from us. It demands a response of faith. And true faith is built on two pillars. It believes the message of the gospel that it is true, and it acts on that belief. So to put it simply, faith obeys from the heart. Faith obeys from the heart. Peter wastes no time in, in what he said to the crowd, transitioning from what God had done for them to what they needed to do. Look at verse 19. He looks at his brothers there and he says this, Repent, therefore. So on the basis of what God has done for you, repent and turn back or flee that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter's desire was not just to hammer people for their sin. His desire was to see this crowd set free from that sin, to be made right with God. Notice that even as he calls them to repent, to turn back from their sin, he also holds out this hope to them, 
showing them the hope that Christ had accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection. The reason that their sins can be blotted out the way Peter says is because Jesus was crushed for them. The reason that these times of refreshing have been set aside for them is because Jesus rescues us from our guilt and makes us rest in him as our shepherd king. The reason that Jesus is coming again, the reason that is good news, is because when he comes, he comes to rescue his people and to hold those who do not take refuge in him accountable for their sin. Peter's obvious desire was to see the people in this crowd restored to God as Jesus had restored him and as he had also restored this lame man to perfect health. This sort of restoration is only possible because of Jesus' work. And we receive that, according to Peter, through repentance and faith. It really is something to consider that Peter didn't say, they didn't just say, hey, if you'll just admit that you guys messed up and that you're sorry, then God won't hold you guilty for what he did to his son. I think sometimes the gospel gets talked about like that, very cheaply. And really it is something so much better. Peter wasn't just pointing people to a place where they could find some shelter from the justice that they rightly deserved. He was pointing them to the one who takes sinners and transforms them into sons, who has power to raise the dead, who conquered the grave, and has power not only to remove the curse of sin from us, but to make us truly alive. That's the portrait that Peter paints of Jesus in his glory to the crowd here. Peter doesn't just preach a cheap gospel here. He plunges us into the depths of the Christian hope, the hope that stands firm on the reality that Jesus accomplished, uh, of what Jesus accomplished through his resurrection and the sovereign power which he wields in his exaltation now. The Jewish hope for the Messiah was for a king whose throne would outshine that of David. Jesus' throne outshines the throne of David in a way that so much more So much more glorious. These people were looking for someone who was going to restore the kingdom. Someone who was going to push out the Romans and lead them to glory. Jesus did so much more than that. Through his death and resurrection, he conquered. And he established a greater kingdom. As we saw in Acts chapter 1, God has exalted him on an eternal throne. The times of refreshing and the sending of the Christ that Peter refers to here seem to be referring to the final results of Jesus' work, the fulfillment, really, of Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, where God says to Jesus, whom David calls his Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is the kingdom inheritance of all who hope in Christ. The priorities of the kingdom of heaven are greater than the boundaries of any one nation. They extend to the whole world. Now, right now we're in the middle of a Russian invasion of Ukraine, trying to take territory and so on. Jesus didn't come to conquer land. He didn't come to set up an earthly empire. He came to establish an eternal kingdom with heavenly priorities. He came to make all things new, to restore us to God, to break down the dividing wall between peoples, to make one man in himself, to defeat death, to dispel sin, to effect perfect justice, and to make us new creatures. 
Jesus speaks from his throne in Revelation 21, verses 5 through 7, and this is what he says. Behold, which is an old way of saying, look, I am making all things new. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. That is what Jesus came to bring. That is what Peter has in mind as he speaks to this crowd about these refreshing times which are coming from the very presence of the Lord and the second coming of Christ who waits and rules now in heaven until the appointed time. Our hope as Christians is not in the here and now. That doesn't mean that we don't enjoy some of the benefits of Jesus' work now, but we don't enjoy them to their fullest extent. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that if our hope is in this life only, then we are above all men most to be pitied. But through his resurrected life, King Jesus gives us a better hope. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ shall all be made alive, Paul tells us. And when the end comes, we will rejoice in an eternal inheritance which he has secured for us as his people. We will be made new. This is an inheritance that does not pass away. There will be no end to it. Peter appealed to the crowd here to repent and to flee from their sin to God because the alternative to these times of refreshing is nothing less than God's righteous wrath. This is a kingdom that we can only be a part of, that we can only enter by faith in its king. If we want to be part of it, then we have to submit to him. And the way we do that is by first repenting and trusting by faith in his name. And that brings us to our third heavenly blessing that Peter brings up. The third heavenly blessing that Peter brings up about Jesus, which Jesus brings to us in this sermon, is the blessing of a new and better covenant. Now, covenants play an important role in the overall structure of the Bible. Uh, They're important to seeing the whole story that the Bible is saying. Um, and the reason they're so important is because they really form the backbone of the great big story of what the Bible, the Bible tells. Now, a covenant is unique and it is important. It is a binding promise. It is different than a contract because it's focused on the relationship between two parties, not just on the benefits. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says that all of God's promises find their yes in Christ. They find their terminus. They find their fulfillment. They find their point in Him. God's promises direct us to the glory of Jesus. And that really is the heart of Peter's sermon here. God's promises point us to Jesus. As Peter witnessed to the crowd in the temple, explaining to them the power that was at work to heal this man and the message of the gospel which he had been commissioned by Jesus to preach, we find him constantly talking about the prophets. And that's because he wanted the people to know, not only on the basis of what he was telling them or on the basis of the, of the evidence of this great work of God's power, but he wanted them to trust this more strictly on the basis of the scriptures. The scriptures which Jesus had come to fulfill, showing that he was in fact Christ. If we look at these nine verses, we find that actually five times 
Peter actually identifies Jesus as the one of whom the prophets spoke. One would be enough. Five times in nine verses, that's a lot. Most specifically in verse 22, Peter quotes Moses, who had told the people all the way back in Deuteronomy 18 to be expecting a prophet whom the Lord would raise up from among them, who would be like him. He says to the people, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Moses had warned the people that it would, it, for, that for every soul who did not listen to that prophet, they would be destroyed from the people. Now Moses' words are very important. Not only do they point us forward to a better prophet who Peter shows is Jesus, but they also warn us that those who reject him will be rejected from his kingdom. Specifically, Moses says that that person who does not listen to this prophet, the same prophet which Samuel and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Daniel and all of the rest of the prophets talked about, he says that they would be destroyed from among the people, which is to be cut off from God's people and from God himself. Now, that's Moses talking. And as far as the Jewish people were concerned, Moses was the highest prophet. But Jesus is greater than Moses. And we know that he is greater because of what John uh, chapter 1, verse 17 explains. John says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. It is from his fullness that we have received grace upon grace. If you notice, as Brad was reading from Jesus' prayer in John 17, the high priestly prayer, you'll see Jesus saying, I have made known to them your word. Now, the law, as we studied in the book of Galatians, is not able to make anyone righteous. It merely shows us how unrighteous we are. It can only show us how far we fall of the glory of God. Jesus came to fulfill the law, to atone for our sin, and to make us new. He also came to establish a new and better covenant, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, which he freely gave on Calvary. And you see the importance of the covenant which Jesus brings in verse 25, where Peter tells the people, You are the sons of the prophets. And the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. As the physical descendants of Abraham, the people in this crowd had every advantage. They had the law of Moses. They had the testimony of the prophets. They knew to be expecting this one who the scriptures spoke of. They had the covenants. God had promised that salvation was to come through them and to them. He had promised that he was going to send an offspring through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. And so Peter, looking into the eyes of these people who had come to worship God, says to them, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The time had come. God's promises had been fulfilled. He had sent his promised offspring. And though they had killed him, Peter shows how God had actually used their hardness of heart to accomplish his plan of salvation. And that the gospel starts, and with that, that we see that the gospel starts with the house of Israel. God kept every one of his promises. The thing to see about Peter's sermon, this appeal to them to repent and believe, is, is that salvation is not a matter of flesh and blood. 
It's not a matter of who your mom and dad are or a matter of where you grew up or what your weekly schedule looks like. Peter makes it clear that membership in God's house, being included among God's people, was a matter of how we respond to Jesus the King. The consequences, according to Moses, of not listening to this prophet was to be cut off and destroyed. So, as we see, Jesus brings two things as the Christ. First, he brings salvation to all who repent and believe. He accomplishes this through his own suffering. Through his sacrifice, he is able to take away our sin. He credits us with his own righteousness. He makes us new. He refreshes us with the light of his glory. He restores the relationship we were meant to have with God. He rescues us from sin. He fulfills God's promise of blessing. For to all who receive him, John 1 verse 12, he gave the right to become children of God. Born not, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The second thing Jesus brings as the Christ is judgment on those who reject him. It is not enough to have the right pedigree. It is not enough to have religion. It is not enough to have some faith. Everything hinges on Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I come to bring peace, but a sword. Not everyone who hears the gospel believes it. Not everyone who sees the power of the glory of God submits him, submits to Jesus as king. Jesus came to make us whole. He came to rescue sinners from sin. He came to destroy the works of Satan. So we read in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, John tells us, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So even as Peter appeals to the crowd, he also warns them, you've seen Jesus' power. You've heard the message of the gospel. Repent and believe. Your sin, though it is truly wretched, is no match for the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. So come, drink from the living water. Come and listen to the words of life spoken to you by the prophet who Moses promised. Come and receive the blessings of Christ. Now there are many more blessings which Jesus brings. But these are three important ones that Peter lays out in this particular sermon. Even as we read about all the benefits that Jesus brings. How he gives us eyes to see our sin as God sees it. How he restores us and makes us new. And how he establishes a new and better covenant. We see those things worked out, acted out, as we come to take the Lord's Supper. As we come to take the Lord's Supper, we're actually confessing our hope in this promise, this fulfilled promise. It is incredible as you read what the Gospels say about how Jesus instituted this holy ordinance, how Jesus actually ties it in to this kingdom work that he does. If we read what Matthew tells us about how Jesus did this, he tells us that while the disciples were eating together with Jesus, that Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body. 
And that then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You see how each one of these elements reflects what we see in Peter's sermon? Jesus' life was not taken from him. He gave it freely to be broken for his people. His blood was spilled. The blood which established this new and better covenant. His promise, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom was a promise that looks forward to the day when His work of making all things new will be complete. When He gives the kingdom of God to His Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For, Paul tells us, He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet, even death which is the last enemy to be destroyed. That is our hope. And every time we take the Lord's Supper together, we're confessing that hope together. That's, why we, that's what we are proclaiming as a church every time we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, that Christ was crushed for our sins, that he established a new covenant by which he has made us sons and daughters of God, and that we are looking forward to the day when he will make all things new and we will live with him in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we've read uh, the words which Peter spoke to the crowd that gathered in the temple, when you healed this lame man, giving glory to the name of Christ. As we read these things, Father, we're, we're cut to the chase thinking about our own sin. Father, this morning we, we confessed our sin to you. Because each and every day we struggle with the flesh. And we struggle with sin and desire for it. And even though Christ has secured victory for us, we still fight. Father, our plea to you this morning is to make us new. Father, restore us in Christ. Give us hearts that beat for you, minds that thirst for you, hands that are eager to do your work, and feet that are eager to go. Father, we pray that your spirit would breathe life into us as your people. And that as you are forming us to be a temple in which you dwell, that we will look forward to the day when you will complete that work and we will dwell in these times of refreshing in your direct presence. Father, even now as we take the Lord's Supper together, help us as we confess this hope to do so uh, in a worthy manner. If there's any outstanding sin in us, Father, we confess that to you. We ask that you would restore us. And even as we take this, this sign of how Christ has delivered us from that sin, we pray that you would minister to our hearts. And I pray, Father, that you would refresh us so that we, as we go out this week, that others might see the hope that lives within us because of what Christ has done for us. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.